Americans would never know what's happening in conflict zones around the world without the courage and talent of battlefield correspondents. The same goes for Israelis. The life of a journalist covering a war zone is unlike anything we can imagine, and many have lost their lives trying to deliver critical stories to people around the world. Now imagine being an Israeli journalist sent to cover wars around the world too. Itai Angal has truly been there and done that. From Bosnia and Rwanda to Pakistan and Afghanistan to Iraq and Syria to Lebanon, the Congo, and the West Bank. Just ahead, correspondent, filmmaker, and star of Ufda news program on Israel's Channel 12, Itai Angle. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Rich, I think this is the first time we have ever had an Emmy-nominated guest on the podcast. I thought you were going to say this is our first podcast since I read in Daily Kickoff that you turned 40. Me? I thought that's what you... No, me. I thought that's what you were going to say to me. Yeah, you yes, did. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not about me. It's not about me. I know. I know it's not okay. Well, yes. Happy belated birthday, Rich. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. Red the big one. Happy. Right. The big, big four oh. The big four oh. Yeah. Um, but Rich, first time we've ever had an Emmy nominated guest. Yes. Uh Could uh be. Eli, Eli have we have I, you fact checked that? Uh I've not fact checked it, but I I I can't can you think of any other guests? Was Will from the West Wing? Was he ever? Uh, was he no, ever was, nominated was, for Emmy? nominated for an Emmy. He might have been. He might have been. Have they were definitely out. nominated for Emmys, but it may have been before he went on the show. True, true, and it may have been like uh, for Sports Night or something. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bet you. I bet you, Melina will write it. Okay, yeah. Rich, why don't you introduce our guests, and uh, we can get right. the fact. Sounds on good. This. Sounds good. Itai Angel is probably the most respected war correspondent and documentary filmmaker in Israel. He's covered dozens of conflict zones in the past 30 years. He is the only Israeli to ever document ISIS from within. Yes, you heard that correct. We'll ask him about it. He is a winner of the Sokolov Prize, the highest award for journalism in Israel. He is a fixture on Israeli television, uh, their Uvda program, which is their version of 60 Minutes. And he's most recently been nominated, as we just talked about, for an Emmy Award for his documentation of the war in Ukraine. Itai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Itai, we got to start, start with the basic question going through the mind of every Jewish mother listening. What is a nice Jewish boy doing running around going to all these war zones? How did that happen? He's doing journalism, uh, whatever he thinks uh, he regards as a journalism. Uh, it's a long story. I was the foreign affairs editor in the army radio station. I mean, as a soldier, I uh, was not a fighting uh, soldier. I was a journalist. The Israeli army radio station is, when you think about it, it consists of people between the ages 18 to 21. It's very young and biting radio station. Um, I was a foreign affairs editor, and I remember, I remember the date. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I remember listening to the BBC World Service. You know, on AM, 1989, there was a correspondent by the name of Graham Leach. I remember his name, and he's saying, "Berlin fall, Berlin Wall is falling down," and I'm just watching it happen. And I thought to myself, 
nobody would be able to convince me that there is a better profession than the one this guy have. And I realized this is what I want to do. I want to be, you know, when, whenever history is being made, not necessarily combats and wars, but, but I need to be outside. I need to be in the field. And uh, unfortunately, most of historical events are taking place through revolutions, uh, coup d'etat, and uh, wars. I'm not a fighting man. I never fought a war. I never shot a gun or a rifle, which is quite rare in Israel. But uh, I realized that I can do it. And it is really an added value when you talk about journalism. And to be an actual war correspondent, to, to really go to all the different battlefields, to seek out the conflict zones, it seems to me a little different than just being a foreign correspondent, right? You know, you could you could have just signed up and said, okay, I, I want to see the world, I want to tell a story, and you get sent to some bureau near the bureau. You seem to have a knack for saying, this is where it's at, this is the front line today, I got to go there. Is there a negotiation that goes on for you to be able to go do these things? You know, maybe at first you're just sort of the young guy begging, like, let me go, let me go. But after a while, you build up the reputation. It just seems to me like you just don't hear about people who are just like, oh, oh, there it is. Oh, oh, you're over here now. You're like, where's Waldo in every conflict zone? I mean, how does how does it work out professionally to, to build towards this? Oh, it's a very good point. Uh, the beginning was quite tough. You know, I tried to persuade, uh, you know, the head of uh, the radio station to let me go to Bosnia when the war erupted. I mean, it is the first time something happened since the World War II in Europe. Let me go there. And uh, the head of the radio station said, why? Why do you think it is a matter of interest? You know, Israel is very provincial, so we are dealing with Israel only. And if someone will go, why, why it should be you? I mean, you don't know anything about field work. You've been sitting here in your little room, you know, collecting uh, foreign affairs item, but you've never been in the field. And he was right. So actually, the first time answering your question, I did it on my own expense. You know, I took like a sleeping bag. I paid for a flight ticket to Austria. I took a train all the way down to Slovenia and I reached Yugoslavia, then Croatia, then Bosnia. You know, the passion was 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 so so big. You know, I, I wanted to be there. I wanted to do it. And if someone told me, no, you're not the one to do it, you know, regardless, I would do it. I didn't listen to anyone. It might sound a bit childish but you know my father is a phd in business he told me this is probably the most clever thing he did uh because then people realize oh this guy the unlikely guy you know i'm skinny guy i don't look like a an israeli fighting you know in a war zone he will be there all of a sudden yeah you can do it and then you know the terrible massacre in rwanda happened in 1994 and then it was Kosovo and Haiti and Chechnya and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. And then came through another challenge, you know, that I need to hide my Israeli identity. We will elaborate about it, I guess, later on. But then people figure out, okay, he's delivering. He's the guy to do it. I mean, again, the unlikely guy, but, but it works out. And for me, you know, each time I went to the field, to a war zone, I realized that I multiple my knowledge not by two not by four but like by dozen times about boston i mean i, I am 
dealing with it. I'm lecturing at university as about, about world conflicts and about uh, international relations. But once you are in there, your understanding becomes so much deeper. So that was my decision. You know, as a journalism, this is exactly what I believe in. This is where I want to go. It's so interesting because you talk about being an Israeli journalist, right? And so there's an Israeli editor back home that's listening to you say, I, I got to go to Bosnia. I, I, I got to go to Rwanda, right? And I can imagine in an American newsroom, you know, we, we're the superpower. We, we everywhere in the world should be our problem in our own mind. And, and so people are delivering news everywhere. It's part of our journalistic history. You're sort of making Israeli journalistic history by doing this, I imagine. At what point does the consumer audience start responding that the newsroom is saying, yeah, we, we want somebody in this crazy conflict halfway around the world that will never actually probably touch Israel, but our viewers, our listeners, our readers want this content. You know, how did, When did that happen and has that continued to evolve inside Israeli journalistic culture? Yeah, I think I sort of invented it actually in Israel. You know, I was sort of a pioneer. Then came other people, uh, fortunately. I mean, this is what I believe in journalism, so I would like as many people uh, to do it. But again, you know, it didn't exist in Israel. And then there was another element in my uh, journeys. You know, people saw me, an Israeli guy, within all this mayhem. So it was also a personal thing, you know, people know me in Israel, so there is the item, something is happening in Chechnya, in Rwanda, in Congo, in Afghanistan, but this guy is going there, and I sort of like holding your hand and take you on a journey. Come walk with me. I mean, people know me, and people, you know, I achieved it, I achieved it in three decades of work, uh, trust me. So like when I say I take you by the hands, you believe me, and uh, I gained your trust through a very hard work. So it was also the element of uh, what I'm going through while in there, especially, you know, when it came to be ISIS and when it came to be notorious uh, militias in Syria and Iraq, how the hell is getting inside there? How does he manage to survive? So it was that interest as well. So for the network, it was no less than, you know, what happened in Syria, but it was also my story and me being there. It works very efficiently within the Israeli society, with, within our viewers. And again, you know, my, my program, the program I'm taking, uh, I've been in for the past uh, 20 years, is sort of like uh, the equivalent of CBS 60 Minutes. So it's like uh, the most popular channel, the most uh, like uh, profound current affairs program. So Everybody is watching it and everybody is talking about it. And since you've got a good reactions, you know, and a lot of curiosity, like how, how the hell he managed to be there, it became an issue in itself. So people sort of have been waiting, you know, for the next uh, trouble, for the next uh, dispatch. I, I kind of imagine what turned to you, Jerry, but I, I kind of imagine that moment in um, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, if you ever saw that movie, one, one of my favorites in the book as well, where uh, Charlie Wilson's in the hot tub and he's he's trying to see the TV and Stan Rather, you know, with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, he's looking at everybody in the in the in the hot tub. He's like, "Why is Dan Rather wearing a turban on his head? What what is, does anybody else here want to know what Dan Rather's doing?" 
in Afghanistan. And and I feel like that must be kind of like what it was like for Israeli viewers to turn on and see and see you just like in these random places. You gotta believe me, this is the way I reacted before I joined this uh this group of people. Like, why would someone explain to me why you should go to these places and how crazy you must be in order to go there? Then, of course, I became one of them and everything, you know, I had a resolve why doing it. But, you know, the beginning was exactly that attitude. So, Itai, a senior Israeli diplomat in D.C. once told me that Israel does not have a foreign policy. It has a defense policy. Um, but you seem like through your body of work that you're trying to change that, that that's something that, you know, uh, re- listeners and readers and, and con- consumers of your content are are maybe changing by virtue of the fact that you are spending time in lots of places that aren't necessarily sort of front and center on the Israeli agenda. First of all, do you think that that's true? And second of all, do you think it's changing? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Unfortunately, it is absolutely true. I think it was Kissinger who said it, you know, the first time that Israel hasn't got a real foreign policy. You know, the policy, if something is happening, you know, in some spot on the world, so the issues are uh, what did this country did at the time of World War II? And is there any Jewish community in there? Not, you know, like genocide that hasn't got to do with Jews, you know, why should we relate to it? which I think, you know, as an Israeli, as a Jewish, you know, I feel a sense of shame. And I do try to change it. Absolutely. I can tell you even from my, uh, I'm Emmy nominee now for my work about the war in Ukraine. And I'm very disappointed from uh, the policy of uh, the state of Israel towards Ukraine. The policy of Israel is let's not make Vladimir Putin angry. And for me, I'm so much disappointed. We can do so much better. I mean, Ukrainians are looking at us. The U.S. is looking at us. The world is looking at us. We got the means to help and, you know, to ship some military technologies and equipment that can save so much lives. And, you know, given our history, I mean, we have to do it. And this is only only one example out of really many. So I do try to change it. And, you know, when I met Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, at the beginning of the war, it was the first time that he appeared. You know, the rumor said he's probably not alive, either he's not alive or he ran away. It was not clear that it stayed, you know, and he's still in Ukraine. And we were told, you should come over. There is going to be a very interesting conversation with someone very important. They didn't even mention Zelensky. And I had the opportunity to talk to him and asked him, you know, whether he asked any assistance from the state of Israel and as a Jewish man, he is Jewish, if he's got expectations from the Jewish state. And you know, to your question, he began answering me by the phrase, uh, by the sentence, it would be, it would sound a bit insulting, but I think that I have to tell you. Like he's got huge admiration from, for the Israeli people huge admiration and love for the Israeli people and a disappointment of the Israeli government. That was what he said. And I think as well, you know, uh, when I bring like a documentary, I get so much reaction. So many people want to contribute. Even, you know, people who've been soldiers in the IDF went to fight in Ukraine. 
you know, people are contributing, but the Israelis are doing it, not the state of Israel. Obviously, we are in a very complicated situation here. You know, we got Syria on our northern border through Syria. Iran is trying to ship weapons and missiles to southern Lebanon, to Hezbollah. So it goes through Syria. In Syria, Putin and Russia are the strong people. So obviously, we have to coordinate with them. We need to take it in, into effect. But if the decision is just don't make Putin angry, wow, this is something that I definitely want to change. And I change it, but, you know, within people, for the time being, not the government. Itai, while, while we're on Ukraine, and, and congratulations on your, your Emmy nomination for your documentation you. of the war there. Uh, exciting to see what happens uh, at the show. Um, we are going through quite the national debate here in the United States about the future of that conflict. I'm sure you're watching some of the presidential debates, et cetera, that's going on. And it's difficult to have that kind of debate without hard, solid facts. And in fast-moving environments, subject to information operations, manipulation of perceptions, all kinds of stuff going on, especially in the in the environment of media that we have today that you have seen evolved over 30 years of you doing this, it, it's, it's incredibly hard to have sort of a, this is actually what's happening in the South right now. This is what is likely to happen over the next few weeks. And then suddenly an intelligence report is leaked. And then, you know, so... It would be really helpful, somebody who's been on the ground, who's watching closely, what do you see today? What do you think is is unraveling? Um, not to potentially take any sides or, or anything like that, but just give us a good picture of, of what your perception is on the ground today and where it's going. You know, if I would like to summarize it in a headline, Putin would like to push the war to go on at least until the next American election. Hopefully for him, Trump wins and Trump is not willing to send, if at all, anything to Ukraine. So, and, and one fact is very clear. Without Western ammunition, Ukraine will cease to exist. I mean, the intention of Putin is not to take, you know, this chunk or that chunk, I remind you, you know, the beginning was a convoy of 64 kilometers, uh, more than 50 miles of uh, tanks and uh, armored vehicle towards the capital, Kiev. He wants to take all Ukraine. He's a dictator. He's not up for an election. You know, he can have like about a quarter of a million people, his people, dead. And it's no consideration for him at all. This is the number, by the way. These are the figures. So he can push it, you know, one year more, two years more, even 10 years more. And the Ukrainians without Western aid would not be able to survive. So you mentioned the Republican debate and I heard the current uh, rising star Ramaswamy, I mean, saying, you know, in a very clear manner, there will be nothing to Ukraine. And he echoes, I guess, not only himself, but also, you know, a state of mind that exists within people, within the Republican Party. I don't know about the Democratic Party. So this is something, you know, uh, that in Putin circles, yeah, people are cheering. People are waiting, you know, for these people to come and take over instead of uh, Joe Biden. And then Ukraine actually will cease to exist. I mean, it is something, and Ukraine is only the beginning. I mean, Poland understand it, uh, Lita, Latvia and Estonia understand it. 
Now there is a counteroffensive of uh, the Ukrainians, but it is very sluggish. It goes very slow, unlike the first counteroffensive, which was huge success, because the Russians are very well trenched, and uh, they again, they don't care about how many people will die. It is something that it is very difficult to explain to Americans or Israelis. We have a saying in Israel. Every human being, you know, is the whole world, is the whole universe. This is how we relate to humans' life. Over there, excuse me, you know, for my uh, language, human lives, it's garbage. It's not a real consideration. I mean, if you're not going to fight, you know, the lines, the people in the line behind you will shoot you in order for you to do it. This is it. I mean... <clears throat> It's sort of, and this is how the Ukrainians relate to the Russians, like, nations of slaves. This is why we would never like to be under like Russian occupation. We are a democracy, democracy with a lot of problems, of course, and corruption. But now something has happened. Something has happened, and we happen to be united as we never did. This is what uh, the invasion of Putin uh, made out of Ukraine. And if they are taking over, we are doomed. So it has to do with ammunition. And this is why if Israel doesn't help and it brings and it provides only sympathy, I think it's a sin. If the West will stop doing it, and you know, if the US will stop providing aid and ammunition, this is it. I mean, Europe is not enough, uh, you know, to help Ukraine keep on going. So, so I'm really afraid. Yeah. Itai, you've been... You've done news reporting and documentary filmmaking in your career. How do you approach both and how do they differ? Okay. Um, when you're in the news, imagine like a news bulletin. Uh, the reports, the length of uh, an average report is about like two minutes. What can you do in two minutes? I mean, you can provide headlines and headlines, and I've been doing it. But I realized while doing it, and, and it is important, of course, that you know, I'm providing you headlines, but life is not headlines. Life is story. I want to tell you, like, you know, Jared, let, let, let me tell you a story, but you got to be patient. <laughs> you know, don't hold me for a headline. I got something to tell you, and it is, uh, there is a complexity in it. You know, think about Israel and the Israeli dispute with the Palestinian. It is so complex. I mean, you got to listen. Headline is something that I don't really like. So I pushed more and more into doing documentaries. Uh, I can make research investigative journalism, but sometimes the word documentary means you got nothing, no investigation, no one that you prepared uh, to meet, no place that is waiting for you. And that's what happened actually in my first documentary in Ukraine. The second one, you know, I had a unit on the front line that I was able to be embedded with. I went to the most difficult uh, city on earth, not in Ukraine, called Bakhmut, when they fought the Ukrainians against uh, the Wagner soldiers, mercenaries. But the first documentary, you know, while the invasion took place, I got to tell you, one day before the invasion took place, Ukrainians, friends in Kiev took us to have a drink and they raised a toast. They laughed at us. Let's raise a toast for the war correspondents who came over to cover the peace. Ha, ha, ha. And I felt so stupid. And I called my editor-in-chief, and I told her, listen, we are wasting our time. 
I know about world conflicts. Nothing is going to be and nothing is going to happen here. And she told me, you know, since you are there, try to remain, you know, at least for the next 48 hours. And then we can, you can go, come back. Six hours later, everything began. This is to show you what a huge surprise it was for the people of Kiev. They were in a complete denial. So you're a documentary filmmaker and you got nothing. You don't know anything. You can't go out. You have got no contacts. I mean, they did not provide, you know, press card from the military. So they don't let you go out. And then someone knows you and someone shows quite a sympathy for you, especially because I was an Israeli. You know, because the, the expectation from Israel at that point of time were huge. Like imagine, you know, Ukrainians, now that we are talking, now that we are talking, Ukraine is being attacked. As it is being attacked for the past year and a half. Now, you know, the minutes that we are talking, missile over Ukraine. And when they are watching all over the globe, looking all over the globe, there is only one country that is being, you know, fired upon. It is called Israel, but for some strange reasons, you know, the missiles are being halted in the sky. Most of them, almost all of them, do not land. We need this trick that Israel have. The expectation from Israel were huge. So when I told someone I'm an Israeli, or oh, you're from Israel, so you can come. And since you're an Israeli, you probably know what war zone is. They didn't know that I was in the radio station as a soldier. So come over. And they let me in when some other journalists didn't enter. And I think what made this documentary to become like uh, nominated for the Emmys is that it is a pure documentary. I mean, you asked about what the difference, like I need to be there. We say in Hebrew, lizom, like to go with the flow. I know nothing. I haven't got a tiny research. You know, I just need to try, but you got to give me time, at least like two weeks to wonder and see where, where it is happening. Because everyone is surprised. And nobody, no Ukrainian has any idea of what is going to happen. Imagine at that point of time, the American intelligence, British intelligence, and the Israeli intelligence give Ukraine 72 hours to live. I mean, the most trusted institution saying there will be no Ukraine within three days. Where are you going? What are you doing with it? And then on the outskirts of Kiev, there are two small cities by the name of Irpin and Bucha. This is where they're trying to, you know, halt the Russians. And I go there. I don't have any idea what is going to happen to me, what is going to happen to Ukraine. And I don't realize that the name, the strange name for me, you know, Irpin and Bucha, <coughs> will be remembered in history as the place that this is where we stopped the Russians. So I came to understand that I like it. You know, most of the journalists in my program don't like it. They know when they go out to the field, they already make the calls to all the people they're going to make interview with. They know what the people that they will make interview with are going to say. They know what the places they are going to shoot in are look alike, look like, and I know nothing. And I like it, and they tend not to like it. But for me, I really love it. This is really history. I mean, you don't control anything. Let me have my time, you know, for two, three weeks. Let me see what I can get here. And I'm most of my work, by the way, I'm doing either by myself. I'm like a one-man band with a camera, with the sound, with producing. Everything is on me. 
or, and that would be the best, if I'm filming with another cameraman. So then we can do it with two cameras and it looks the best, you know, visually speaking. And this is what we did in Ukraine. So we do not cost too much money. You know, we're not like a crew of uh, five or 10 people. You see sometimes a lot of bodyguards, you know, for the CNN, for the CBS, for the BBC, like huge crew. No, either one or two. So I don't cost too much money. Itai, there, there's an enormous amount of power and influence uh, in your reporting uh, and in your documentaries, because if no one else is there and no one else is telling the story, your story stands alone. As you start gathering, as you go in without understanding what you're going to see, what you're going to hear, and, and stories start appearing to you and you decide on, this is what I want to tell, this is what I'm going to get out. Is it just, you know, I think this is the news and that's just what I want to report? Or is there a piece of this is what I think people are missing in the world? This is what the president of the United States needs to hear. This is what the Congress, this is what world leaders and powers are not understanding and not seeing in the story that I that I want to tell. And how do you balance sort of the journalistic aspect with that obvious influence that you wield? No, interesting. Sometimes... You know, there is a difference between what I'm doing while I'm in the field. Over there, I mostly collect, like I call it, raw materials. I'm shooting everything. I'm filming everything. And then, you know, when I finish, then I will start to think what I want to say. Sometimes, you know, I have it in mind. You know, if there is a massacre in front of my eyes, I know exactly what I want to say and what message I want to deliver. But sometimes, you know, it gets to you only after two weeks and then you get the whole idea and to get the story. You know, I'm working in the Israeli TV. So the main audience for me are Israelis. And think about it. We said that Israel has got sort of a problem with the, what we should call foreign policy. Israel is provincial. So, a lot of Israelis are thinking that anyone beyond our border is a pure enemy. This is the stereotype they cling to. You know, it has to be an enemy because the information they are getting from is coming from commentators. They might be these commentators, very intelligent people, but when you think about it, they talk about places they've never been in and they are commentating about people they never met. This is madness, the way I see it. Now, I'm one of the very, very, very rare few people from Israel who are trying to go to these places and talk to these people. So when I talk to Iraqis, Syrian, Lebanese, I never tell them that I'm an Israeli. I tell them that I'm Jewish. But sometimes we do talk about Israel. You know, when I go back, when I come back to Israel, Israel is, you know, stopping me in the street. This is really how they talk to you over there in Syria? Like it is so, it sounds strange to them that they didn't burn me alive or something like that. Like they talk, they're interested, they're willing to, you know, to, to communicate. So this is something that I want to do. I want Israelis to, to look at these places. I want to show them how things really look like from within, not commentary, but this is real life. These are the people. This is my first aim especially when I'm working in uh, Iraq or Syria. Then, you know, there are lectures that I'm doing not only in Israel, but also uh, uh, 
to Americans, to Europeans, and I provide them, again, from the field, a different point of view that they haven't thought about it. So, Isai, you spent a lot of time in Syria, right? And so tell us what it is to be like a Jew and an Israeli running around Syria in the middle of the conflict with ISIS. And, like, how is that, you know, how are you received? Who would talk to you? Who wouldn't talk to you? Um, and what level of sort of cover did you need to give yourself um, to ensure your own safety? Yeah, that was frightening as hell. You know, I told you about my... <laughs> I'm glad you're upfront about that. Yeah, but I told you about my history. I began, you know, in uh, Croatia, Bosnia, Rwanda. These are dangerous places, but I don't have any problem being an Israeli. You know, I'm taking the same risk as anyone else takes. But one thing happened, the beginning was Afghanistan. It's a little risk, but then Syria and Iraq, if someone realized that I'm an Israeli... It is a very, very big problem. Now, I do have a foreign passport. I was born in the U.S. I, I never lived in the U.S. because my parents have been studying in the U.S. Uh, in uh, Columbia University in New York. And when I was born, immediately they came back to Israel. So I never lived in the U.S., but I have the American passport, you know, U.S. citizen. I took the name Itai out of the passport. I have another name. You know, after my late grandfather who came to Israel from a country in which you do not have Hebrew names. So if you Google my name, you get nothing. This is like my entry, you know, to go to these places. Then I got to think completely different from the way I've been behaving in my previous assignments. Because I don't like doing it, but I need to act a little bit, to do acting. What I mean by acting is not to show any fear. As I told you, I'm frightening to death, but I have to show as if I feel absolutely fine. Because if you show like a scary face, you know, like the eyes are rolling and you look, you look very, very suspicious to them. And then they would ask question, why he looks like that? What's his story? And I know that if someone would say, what's his story about me? You know, we're living in a technology <clears throat> that, you know, someone would, click on the camera of the iPhone, face recognition, and within a minute or two, you know, we'll have photos of me for my bar mitzvah. So I don't want to provide them a reason to be interested in me. What I'm saying is I'm acting as if I feel absolutely fine. I see someone burning the Israeli flag and the American flag. It happened two times in my life. You know, my stomach inside, I want to die. But on the outside, I'm so cool. I pretend to be cool, I mean. I approach this guy. I'm not running away because it will look, you know, like, why does he running away? Did he do something bad? He was smoking a cigarette. I'm not smoking anything, but if it helps, you know, I'm asking him for a cigarette. Like, I, I behave as if I feel fine, you know, within this atmosphere. And then they feel fine with me. So, you know, before even doing journalism, I have to break the ice. When you see me in my reports in Syria and Iraq, I was there alone. I give them my camera. Come and have my camera. This is the only thing I have. Please have it. Can you help me? Can you film me inside this situation? When I say, can you help me, 
actually I'm saying to you without saying the words like I trust you, you're a good guy. And there is nothing that people want to hear, especially in those uh, places, you know, a very notorious reputation like Iraq, like Syria, like Lebanon or Afghanistan. Everybody, you know, is suspicious of each other. And I say, I trust you. You're a great guy. And I'm alone. I have no bodyguards. I have nothing. So this is how I like I make the contact. So I need to behave. But I'm thinking all the time, is someone looking at me with a bad eye? You know, is someone suspecting me? It is torturing my soul. You know, when I go to sleep at night, because while doing it, I'm in sort of a mode. I call it a mode because it is not like Itai. No one in Tel Aviv would recognize me while working in Syria and Iraq because I'm, I'm so much focused. I'm so much focused. Thank, thank God I have the camera, you know, that I have something to, to hold, that I have something to aim, to occupy myself with. If I didn't have any camera, you know, I would probably suffer a heart attack, you know, because it is so scary. So I need to have this camera. And then I know also to speak uh, Arabic, and I speak Arabic sometimes even with an American accent because, you know, he, Israeli people have fair Arabic if they try, fair accent in Arabic if they try to speak. So I don't want them to suspect me like, where are you coming from? Your Arabic is too good. So I'm doing like a, sort of an American accent because I'm an American and I speak also Italian. So I'm American of Italian origins and everything. And... Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm really proud because, you know, I hesitated a lot before going there. I thought to myself, maybe this is one step too far. And this is an exaggeration. And then you go, you know, I had a grandfather. He came to Israel 100 years ago from uh, Russia. He actually built the port in Tel Aviv. This is the first port and the first access to get to Israel, you know, to bring ammunition to the community. <clears throat> so he told me some you know, ancient phrases in Russian. And one of them is which means like the eyes are afraid, but the hands are doing. Anything that you see and you think, wow, this is something I shouldn't mess with. This is so scary. This is so dangerous. Go ahead. Make the first step. Get into the situation. Get into this place. Get to these people and you realize that you can do it. And he had a lot of, he had a, a huge effect on me, my grandfather. I think without this phrase and without my grandfather, I, I, I would never, never try to go to this line of work. Did the Israeli government need to approve this? I mean, was, was it done without their, their knowledge? How does that work? Obviously, if you were exposed, I mean, that's a massive crisis for, for the government, the IDF, et cetera. Um, how, how does that, e maybe you can't talk about it, but how does that even work to, to get the approval to say, yeah, I'm going to go do, or do you just not tell anybody? You just, you're just like, it's a fauda. You're just like showing up in Syria. I never tell anyone. Listen, even within my, uh, network, only two people know because, you know, it is a dangerous thing to do. And if someone is talking about it or gossiping about it, it is a threat to my life. And I would never tell you know anyone in israel that i'm going i can do it as a journalist and, and again i'm not an israeli when i'm going like i'm an i'm an american so you the state of israel cannot tell me not to go now you touch on something very sensitive if something is happening to me so i'm saying it in every stage that i can you know the country is not the state is not responsible for me 
You know, it is my decision. It is my network's responsibility. They will do everything. I have sort of insurance, you know, but something can happen. I'm not like someone that the Israel state sent and is responsible for me. And I got to tell you something, and it has to do also with the previous question about the risk I'm taking. I lost quite a few people that I know. Some of them were good friends, colleagues. Obviously, you are aware with the name James Foley. James Foley, American journalist, great journalist, great guy. We knew each other. And uh, by the way, when I'm working in places like Syria and Iraq, I'm not trying to mingling with other journalists, you know, because I can fool the locals that I'm uh, an American of Italian origin, but I would never be able to fool Americans or journalists. You know, they are so much trying to see who you are and gossiping and talking. So, you know, imagine they would sleep in this hostel and I would go to another one. I'm quite alone in my... uh, journeys but i saw him and he's a good guy so you know it was always hey take care something like that and sometimes we talked a little bit and then i figured you know he's a nice guy i can talk to him i can trust him i told him that i'm an israeli and he told me oh so you're like a mega crazy guy and we laughed it. and that's it and you know my first entrance to syria was november 2012 I was smuggled from Turkey inside Syria. And I felt very good with the people I've been in, in Syria. These were the moderates, you know, rebels. And I could tell them that I'm Jewish. And even we talked about the state of Israel. Everything is on film. You know, it was broadcast. People in Israel were in a complete shock. When we got out, we realized that James Foley entered four days before we did it. Smuggled from Turkey in the same region called Idlib in Syria. And then you know what happened to him. ISIS took him and they beheaded him. You know, for me, it was like the biggest crisis of my life. (coughs) And then we wanted to find out what was like the distance between the path we took and the path he took. And apparently it was a few miles. That's it. And this is the first time that we realized that Syria does not really exist as a country. Imagine like a uh, a movie about uh, gangs that dividing the city into territories. This is mine. This is yours. So I've been in a territory which is, you know, amazing. People want democracy, uh, rights for women. They are fine with me if I talk with them about Israel and I'm Jewish, no problem. And, you know, within three, four miles, it is a territory when people are burning people alive, bringing cages with women to be sex slaves for the jihadists. And beheading people and this is what they did to james foley and i met his mother she knows me we made a lecture together about james foley legacy in notre dame university and i told her what i told you about like how we reacted when uh, when he knew that i'm an israeli and this story is very sad because you know when he was in captivity uh she was wondering you know what is like the role of the state. And she was assured that the state is doing everything it could to save James Foley. But it was very different like from what the Europeans did because the Europeans were willing to pay money in order to get back some of the people 
And some of the people who were released from the captivity and they've been with them fully, they made a contact with Diane fully in order to, <clears throat> to tell her, listen, it can be done. Because she was led to believe that, you know, the government is doing everything for her that they can. Now, Israel would not pay money, probably. The Americans would not pay money, but there will be cases that they will. But it is a sensitive issue. And I know the Israeli mentality. I know a bit about the American mentality. So regarding my personal case, I try to emphasize for anyone, it'll never be a problem if something, God forbid, is happening to me. And, and I really believe in what I'm saying. Itai, we're going to go, uh, I think, to the lightning round now. This is, first of all, this is amazing, and I want to sort of sit and digest with it, but this is great stuff, and, and we really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with you. But we have something at the end of our podcast that with every guest we call the lightning round, where we are ask you a series of sort of shorter questions to just get a little bit more of a sense of who you are. Um, so the first one in the lightning round is, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And you can say uh, profanity as long as it's in Yiddish. <laughs> profanity laden. Tuches. Like, oh, it, can be, it can be. It doesn't have <laughs> to be. But it can be. Tuches. Tuches. Tuches means, sorry for the word, ass. And sometimes I heard my father, again, you know, his mother came from Germany, so Germany in Hebrew creates Yiddish. You know, when I did something that he didn't like, oh, you are tuches, like, like you're an ass. I mean, you're a little piece of shit, but, you know, Yiddish is, is a very humoristic uh, language, so it's not that, you know, he cursed me, but it was like, oh, piece of tuches, you know. Yeah, so that's my favorite, yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite Jewish food? Well... You should decide if it is Jewish or not. I like Jewish food, but my wife, she is a Jew of Ethiopian origin. And uh, they make injera. This is like Ethiopian food. So it's not like a typical Jewish food, but you know, it's like a, typi it's a typical food for the Jews from Ethiopia. And I love like injera. So... It's not a typical Jewish food. And when it comes to Jewish food, I mean, what do we have? What, what we can choose from? Like, uh, it depends if it is a Jewish food from Eastern Europe, Europe or like, although I'm an Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi I, I like much better the food, you know, that comes from Lebanon and Iraq and Syria and Libya. And uh, if I should... Say what is my best? Wow! Again, I'm not sure it is Jewish or Israeli, but um, some kind of very, very, very spicy meat. Spicy I have to meat. ask: did, did you ever have Shabbat dinner with those two Jews left in Kabul when, during your time in Afghanistan, Pakistan? Did you ever meet them? Or, or I met one of them, and I think no one made Shabbat with the two of them. You know why? Because <laughs> they, they don't like each, each other. other. Yeah. yeah, one of them is Levi, and the other one is Simantov. They were the last Jews to remain in Afghanistan. By the way, the Taliban regime did not hurt them. But apparently someone suspecting that the other one told some things about him, so they don't talk. So it's the most 
absurd reality that you can imagine. Imagine like a house in which you have few apartments. One belongs to Simantov and one belongs to Levy. And in this house, you have like adjacent synagogue. So you have two synagogues. And each one is praying in a different synagogue. But they don't talk to each other. I remember it was quite difficult for me to uh, locate uh, where these two Jewish people are. I was afraid to ask directly, you know, the taxi driver in Kabul, uh, the capital of Afghanistan. Then when I felt fine with him, you know, there are two Jewish people. And then he was amazing. He told me, listen, we in Afghanistan have been through so many wars like we fought the Russian, we fought the English before the Russian came, then we fought the Americans, then we fought the Al-Qaeda, and we fought the Taliban. Now there seems to be, you know, that finally peace came to Afghanistan. I'm talking about 2001. There was an optimism in the air. The only war we have is between these two Jewish people, Levy and Simantov. This is the last war in Afghanistan. So, you know, be with them together, uh, I don't think anyone did in the Shabbat. Well, you know, the, the old joke about the, the two uh, Hasidic men stuck on a desert island, they build three synagogues, one for one guy to pray in, one for the other guy to pray in, and one that neither of them will step foot in. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Who, Ita, who is your favorite wartime correspondent of all time? Okay. Uh, I got to tell you, um, I like Bob Simon, Bob Simon. I knew Bob Simon because he was working also uh, in Israel. And um, he was something that he was someone that I looked onto, you know. I really, he was a very courageous guy, but he was also very in depth and uh, intelligent. I remember a few pieces that he did. I remember the end of the apartheid when there was a reconciliation committee, you know, in order to forgive the white people for what they did. And I saw his report. And you know what? It is the first time that I decided in my life that I don't want to do news. I want to do documentary like this guy just did. Uh, it was amazing. And unfortunately, he was killed in a, in a car crash. You know, he's been to the most dangerous places and he managed to stay alive. He was captive in Iraq, but, you know, he made it. And then, yeah, my heart broken, you know, when I realized that he was killed. Okay, last question. Uh, and, and it kind of brings it all together. You, you have been pretty much everywhere in the last 30 years. We've touched on just a few of them. Uh, obviously, they're all different in different ways. And I don't really know how you go about ranking your experiences or comparing them or logging them as far as favorites, worst, most impactful, et cetera. I'll leave that sort of to you of how you characterize prioritization. But is there one that stands out the most other than the Syria one, which is obviously for various reasons, probably in the craziest category, is there one conflict that has meant the most to you that has been I don't know how you would define favorite, but but the the number one place you've been out of all of them. You know, Bosnia was the first one. So, like I always felt that, you know, it's in my soul. You know, there were years that I been listening to Bosnian music. You know, like 
I was there. Part of me is still there. But I got to tell you, every time I change my mind, when I've been to the massacre in Rwanda, for example, in 94, imagine 800,000 people dead. You see bodies all over. This is an experience that I was absolutely sure back then that nothing would match it. I mean, it is the worst thing and make you think about human nature, humankind, about life, about death, about philosophy, about everything. And it, when Syria came, when Lebanon came, but, but I got to tell you, now Ukraine became so dear to me. I became even, I, I, need, I need to admit it, a bit obsessed. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I go to Telegram channels in order to find out what is happening in Bakhmut in specific uh, streets that I've been in and uh, to get all the information. Ukraine became very dear to me since, you know, some of the people I uh, documented, unfortunately, were killed. And now it amounts to eight people. Eight people that I got on my camera. And imagine what it does to you. I mean, like I, I already told myself, maybe the next time I go there, I would not try to be that involved emotionally. Because you get to know people, and statistically, they have a big chance for them to die. And then you're heartbroken and you cannot go on. I thought about something, that if I would go again to Ukraine, to a place like Ukraine, I would try to be less sensitive and less getting attached to people. Because I care about the people I'm filming. And when they are killed, you know, I'm heartbroken completely. I mean, it is a crisis for me. And, you know, there is a nurse, and she died exactly, she was killed in exactly the spot that I filmed her a few weeks before. And there is a guy, I asked him about, like, do you think about death? And he answered me philosophically, but two weeks later, he was killed in the same place. So I'm, I feel like, like completely disturbed about it. And when I'm saying I will go there next time, if I go, I will try less to make emotional contact, you know, it is bullshit because... You decide to go to these places because you care about people and you want to be close to them and you want to tell their story. So uh, Ukraine now is the one that most uh, present in my life still. Itai, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, what an incredible experience to have you on and sharing your story and hearing, hearing all about it. I really appreciate it. I thank you very much for inviting me and having the patience to listen to me. Thank you so much. Rich, one uh, programming note or one fact-checking note, Josh Molina was not indeed nominated for an Emmy. He was nominated, however, a number of times for Screen Actor Guild's awards, but was not nominated for an Emmy, but there's still time and we're still rooting for you, Molina. So there you go. Thank, thank you for fact-checking that. That was... That no, was no. I mean, I was like in, I was entranced in this interview with Itai and you're out there fact checking my Josh Molina question on hey, Emmys. So there you go. I'm, I'm happy to do it. All right. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.